All right. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our 11.30 a.m. here at Citizens. My name is Jason. I serve as the lead pastor on staff here uh, at the church. So great uh, to see you all here. Um, I know that a lot of our students are now back, so this service is definitely going to feel a little bit more full. Um, so great to have you all here with us. Um, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's word. As you know, uh, a few weeks ago, we actually launched a year-long theme, a year-long sermon series at our church called Childlike Wonder, uh, where we're walking through every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And last Sunday, we started at the very beginning, and we looked at the creation narrative found in Genesis chapter 1, where we get a picture of the world as it should be, a world full of beauty and goodness, wholeness and delight, where everything is in its right place where everything is in perfect peace. And we didn't get to read Genesis chapter 2 last week, but Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of humanity, and it takes us into a garden, the Garden of Eden, where human beings live in perfect harmony with God, with each other, and with creation. It's a picture of what the Bible calls shalom, ultimate reality, the world as it ought to be. You know, the other week, um, my wife and I, we took our kids to the park on a rare... Um, Saturday afternoon when we didn't have anything else going on and we just sat on a bench at the park and the sun had just started to set. Um, the weather was getting cooler. You could, we could feel the LA breeze on our faces and um, we were just watching our kids playing, laughing, having a great time in the playground and my wife turned to me on the bench and she said, this is 100% going to be a core memory for me forever. And, and I think um, we both felt something in that moment. Um, where we just felt so connected to God, connected to God's creation, connected to each other. We both felt a sliver of shalom, the world as it ought to be. And when you think about it, we savor and we fight for moments like this because we know they're so rare. We know they're so hard to come by. And it's almost unthinkable that there was actually a time long ago, there was a reality in which Every single moment of every day was drenched in God's shalom, where every single moment was drenched in God's love and his joy and his peace. Well, that lasts for all of two pages, because on page three of the Bible, everything changes. Um, the way Genesis chapter two ends is with these words, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And it's our last glimpse of God's perfect world before it's completely ravaged by sin. And so we're going to look at Genesis 3 today, the fall of humanity, if you want to turn with me there. Um, if you're following along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading the NIV. And again, uh, as we did last week, Genesis 3 is a long um, text um, and maybe a familiar text for some of us, but I'm really going to encourage us to use our imaginations as we dive back into this familiar story, um, that this, this familiar story would come alive for us again. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3, this is the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust our lives and this time into your loving hands. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. They say that the three most fundamental questions of humanity are who am I, what went wrong, and how do I get back home? Who am I, what went wrong, and how do I get back home? And when you think about it, a lot of times what drives every decision we make in life, the things that keep us up at night, if we would really trace all these things back to their root, they're trying to answer one of these questions. Who am I, what went wrong, and how do we get back home? And it's really sad because a lot of people live their entire lives not even having been able to answer that first question, who am I? And because we don't know who we are, so many times we misdiagnose what went wrong and so we have no idea how to get back home. We all ache for home, but we have no idea what home looks like. And so we look for it in people, we look for it in money and possessions, hoping it will fill the void and emptiness you and I feel so deeply. 
And the reason these first few chapters of Genesis are so important is that they give us the answers to these first two questions. Who am I and what went wrong? Now, we don't need the Bible to tell us that there's something wrong with the world. Just need to turn on the news for five minutes or, or honestly just turn on TikTok for five minutes and it will become painfully obvious to you that things are not the way they should be. Disease, corruption, abuse, natural disasters, poverty, crime, injustice, suicide, tragedy after tragedy. Those of you who've ever had to answer the phone and had, a, had to have a doctor tell you your loved one is not gonna make it. Those of you who've ever had your heart broken. I remember um, I attended a funeral a week after my daughter was born. So this is my first child. And it was a week after my daughter was born and it was a funeral for a two-year-old girl. And I will never forget that funeral because it resonated so deeply with me because I had just become a dad to a daughter. And an image that I will never forget from that funeral is um, as this dad is having to bury his two-year-old daughter, he walks over to her coffin, which is literally this big, and he walks over to her coffin and he just puts his hand on the coffin. And I remember thinking to myself, that is not right. The world is not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not just the world out there, it's everything happening in here. Many of us are sitting here today going through depression, anxiety. Many of us are navigating discontentment, burnout, exhaustion. We are clearly not well. I tell people this all the time, but 2020 was like the human condition wrapped up in one year, right? For all of our ingenuity, for all of our creativity, advancement, and progress, this is the best we could do. Hospitals flooded with people, marriages torn apart, social political strife, violence, fear, hatred. It was all of the brokenness of humanity and creation on full display. And Genesis 3 tells us where all of this brokenness came from. That all of this evil originates from a singular moment in a garden when sin is introduced into the human story for the first time. Now, sin is obviously a very loaded word. Um, we hear it a lot at church. But a simple way to define sin is that sin is basically a disruption to God's perfect world. It's any action or thought or deed that's less than what God has called good. And so we're going to walk through this passage. And again, um, there's no way this sermon is going to be exhaustive. But we're going to talk about three things. The nature of sin, the consequences of sin, and the cure for sin. Okay, the nature of sin, the consequences of sin, and the cure for sin. If you look at with me at how Genesis 3 opens, it opens with a serpent. Okay, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We have no idea where the serpent came from. There's no mention of the serpent in Genesis chapter 1 or 2, but out of nowhere, the serpent is there. Now, obviously, like I mentioned last week, it's, it sucks, but we don't get all the answers to all of our questions about what exactly happened, how the serpent got there. But here's what we do know. When the serpent appeared, God wasn't surprised by it. Okay, and we know this, and just to give us a little small detail in Genesis 2, right before God creates Eve, 
He says, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And that word translated helper is the Hebrew word azer. Okay, and some of you may know this, but not only is azer a word used to describe God himself in the Old Testament, but it's also a military word used to describe powerful nations that Israel called on for help in times of war. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would Adam need, a, need an azer in the garden? It's like, Everything was perfect. Why wouldn't God just give Adam a fellow gardener? Why would he give him a fellow warrior? It makes you wonder if God knew that resistance was coming. And he knew that life was going to be a fight. And again, why did God allow it to happen if he knew it was coming? We don't know the answers to that. You know, well, I mean, couldn't he just have gotten rid of the serpent? We don't know all the answers. And it, it reminds us that we don't have all the answers to life, life's questions. We don't always know why things happen the way they do. But if there's anything that this tells us is that there is nothing that happens in the world or in our lives without, without God knowing about it. It doesn't mean God causes everything to happen. It doesn't mean it doesn't break the heart of God and grieve the heart of God when he watches his people suffer. But it means that there is nothing that happens outside of God's sovereign will. And so I want to start there. Now, the first thing the serpent does is pose a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Such a subtle but insidious question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, Genesis 3 is like a master class in lying. Okay, if you yourself are a good liar or you know good liars, um, all good liars know two things. Sometimes uh, it's better to cast doubt on the truth than it is to tell an outright lie. Did God really say? But two, it actually makes it more believable when you fill your lie with half-truths. Okay, and you understand when you read this text why Jesus refers to the devil in John 8 as the father of lies. That when he lies, he speaks in his native tongue. God did tell Adam and Eve not to eat from a tree. Not any tree. But you see how Satan slips that in there? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And already you can see that Eve is rattled because she also changes God's words in her answer back. When she says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. God never said not to touch it. Eve added that. If you go back to Genesis 2, God never said, you may not touch it. Eve added that. So already you can see that there's a sudden change in Eve's posture because she's putting words in God's mouth now. Um, the other day I was trying to teach my son how to play tennis. Uh, once again, uh, realizing that parents should never teach their kids how to do anything. Okay? It's a horrible, horrible idea. It's horrible. And we're on the tennis court and I give him a racket and I say, hold the racket like this. And he's like, I am holding the racket like this. And he's holding it like this. I'm like, no, hold it like this. He's like, I am holding the racket like this. I'm like, no. And I grab his hand, and he's like, throws the racket down. And he starts crying. And I'm like, what? He, start, he starts crying. He runs to his mom because he's a mama's boy. And he's like, daddy, daddy thinks I'm bad at tennis. I was like, I did not say that. I literally did not say that. And I'm like, 
there are other people playing tennis around me, and I'm like screaming at my five-year-old boy. I did not say that. I did not say that. Right? And I realized like his mindset is now different. It has moved from a, a, a posture of dad is trying to help me to dad is trying to hurt me. The dad thinks I'm bad at tennis. When Eve adds the detail that God said I couldn't touch it either, you can see that her posture is moving from one of trust to one of suspicion and accusation. God wants to keep me from something. So he didn't just say I couldn't eat from it. He said I couldn't touch it either. Well, the serpent sees this opening, immediately capitalizes, he responds, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He doesn't correct her. He says, okay, I'm going to work with this. Right? No, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It would be like if my wife said to my son in that moment, dad said that? Are you serious? Jack, you're not bad at tennis. Dad just wants to keep you from getting any better. He doesn't want you better than him, right? And in that moment, Jack was so vulnerable, he would have believed her. He would have believed her. And this is exactly what the serpent does. He casts doubt on God's goodness, and Eve takes the bait. Notice, the serpent never casts doubt on God's existence. He never tries to get Adam and Eve to believe God doesn't exist. In fact, he says, did God really say no, he does something even worse. He tries to cast doubt on God's goodness. He paints a picture of a God who doesn't have her best interest in mind, a God who can't be trusted, a God who wants to keep her down, who isn't working for her good. I just realized that in my analogy, my son is Eve, my wife is the serpent, and I'm God. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, Anyways, um, now I don't know if you caught this, but um, at the beginning of Genesis 3, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The Lord God. And because we don't have the Bible in its original language, we don't sometimes see the nuances of the wordplay that's happening. But whenever you see in your Bible, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God, that's translated from the Hebrew phrase, Yahweh Elohim. It's the personal covenantal name for God. It's a name meant to signify God's intimate relationship with Israel. And that's how Genesis 3 opens. But if you notice, right when the serpent approaches Eve, the serpent does not say, did the Lord God really say? You know what the serpent says? Just did God really say? The serpent uses the generic name for God, just Elohim. Again, so subtle, but he's saying, did God, this powerful, holy God, but not personal God, did God really say that? And if you notice, when Eve responds, she also refers to God, not as Yahweh Elohim, but as just Elohim. So even before she takes one bite of the fruit, the relationship is already undermined. Because they're talking about God as though he's a distant God. She's already gone. She's already on the road to destruction. And once the trap is set, 
Eve takes the bait, and we read in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Okay, and I just want to note this. Anyone who thinks the fall of humanity was, was the woman's fault, homeboy was standing right next to her, okay, who was with her. He was worse because he was like, I'm going to see if that kills you first. <laughs> and why don't you take the bite and, oh, are you good? All right, I'm going to take it too. Who was with her and ate it, okay? But I want to read this again. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. When she saw that it was good. Does that phrase sound familiar? From last week, up to this point, that phrase has only been reserved for God alone. All throughout Genesis 1, it's when God saw all that he had made, he saw that it was good. When God saw all that he had created, he saw that it was very good. God was the reference point of goodness. God was the protagonist. This was God's story. But at this moment, humanity says, this is my story now. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. She decided what was good and pleasing and desirable. And here we see the root of sin. It's when we become the ultimate reference point of the universe. When we decide for ourselves what is good and what is not, when we choose to be our own God, when life moves from your will be done to my will be done. What Eve was saying was, at the end of the day, I know what God said about the tree. But I see that the fruit of the tree is good for food and pleasing to the eye. So I'm going to eat it. I'm going to decide what's best for me. Now, friends, if we're honest, you and I do this every day of our lives. This interaction in Genesis 3 is on repeat every single day, every single moment. There may not be a literal serpent, but it's happening in every conversation, in every space we inhabit, in every decision we make, big and small. Where should I send my kids to school? Who should I marry? Should I be dating this person? Should I stay at my job? How should I use my money? How should I use my body? Every moment of our lives, we stand in front of a tree, and there's a voice whispering in our ear, did God really say that? Is that what it really says? No, you certainly will not die. Don't worry, it'll be fine. You deserve to be happy. It's not harming anyone. Did God really say that? And in those moments, the real question is not what's right or wrong. The question is, who will you trust to make that decision? Will you trust yourself? Or will you trust the one who created you? Because the enemy's message comes down to this. God will not take care of you. God is not working for your good, so you better take care of yourself. 
You better take matters into your own hands. You do what you think is best. You be God. You see, many of us grew up in Christian contexts, church contexts, where we were taught that sin is breaking the rules. Like, you're not supposed to do that because that's breaking the law. That's breaking the rules. What we see here is that sin is not ultimately about breaking the rules. It's about breaking a relationship. It's about humanity asserting their independence. And when we do that, the consequences are devastating. Which brings me to the second point. The consequences of sin. Notice the first thing the serpent does is minimize the consequences of sin. You will not die. Don't worry. It'll be fine. And we do this all the time. We minimize sin all the time. It was just a mistake. Not a big deal. I'll ask for forgiveness tomorrow. It won't, we, it won't kill us. And we minimize sin. But what's the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve take a bite of the fruit? It says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Wait, I already thought they knew they were naked. They knew they were naked. But this is when shame is introduced into the story for the first time. Their eyes are open to shame and so they begin to hide. And from that point on, this is the story that has defined mankind. People trying to be God, failing miserably at it, and then doing everything they can to hide themselves. We hide behind our wealth. We hide behind our popularity. We hide behind our degrees, our kids, our good deeds. Some of us hide in church. Some of you are hiding here right now. And this instinct towards self-preservation doesn't just impact us. It impacts everyone around us. The first thing that happens when God confronts Adam, you know what he does? He says, she made me do it. The first thing that happens when God confronts Eve, she says, the serpent made me do it. And all of a sudden, what was a perfect relationship with God and humanity, with humanity with each other, humanity and creation, all of a sudden is wrought with blame shifting, division, hostility, disunity. And it doesn't just end there. This is now going to have reverberating impacts on future generations. If you keep reading in Genesis, in Genesis 4, you get the story of Cain and Abel. And because Cain wanted to get his, what does he do? He murders his own brother in cold blood. A little bit later, you read about, um, you read about one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, who ends up killing multiple people. You see, sin doesn't just stay stagnant. It compounds over time. It gets worse. You know, when you read some of the stories of people who've committed some of these horrific mass shootings recently, you realize that these shootings, they never happen in a vacuum, right? Um, they aren't just like one-off events. They are usually the end result of a long story that began with a whisper, that began with a lie, that grew and festered and compounded over time. Sin will not stay put. It will always grow and poison you and everyone around you. And when God comes and he tells humanity what their punishment is going to be, you know, I think we often think, man, God is this like angry tyrant raining down curses on them. It's like, what really did they do? Wasn't even that big of a mistake. They just took a bite out of a fruit. I mean, really, you're going to punish them that bad? When the Bible talks about the curse of God, when the Bible talks about God 
cursing his people, a better way to understand it is that God is just telling you what you're doing to yourself. That's what he's doing. He's saying, you want to be God? This is what's going to happen. He's saying there are devastating consequences that go far beyond a piece of fruit if you want to be God. He's saying you're going to experience pain in your most intimate relationships, mother and child. You're going to experience pain, husband and wife. You're going to experience pain in work. You're going to experience pain in creation. Everything that was once good will be broken. You're setting yourself up for doom and destruction. And I don't need to convince you that these consequences are still alive and well today. Every time we say, not your will, but my will be done, we're basically invoking the curse of Genesis 3 over and over and over again. We're giving the enemy authority over that space in our life, and the result is always profound pain, alienation, and restlessness. When we say, you know what? I'm not going to forgive her. Did you hear what she did? I'm not going to forgive her. I know what God said. I know what Jesus said. I know it's for my good, but I don't know. I don't trust it. I'm going to get mine. And she's going to pay for what she did for me. When we do that, we immediately give the enemy authority and dominion over that space, over that relationship in our lives. The consequences of sin are devastating. Well, what's the cure? It's the final point. How do we deal with something as insidious and as powerful as sin? And we certainly can't do it with our own strength. Anybody who's ever struggled with addiction, we the first to tell you that that we aren't capable of dealing with it ourselves. We need a supernatural intervention. We need divine mercy. And what I love most about Genesis 3 is that in the midst of all the chaos humanity has caused, in the midst of God watching his perfect world be vandalized right before his eyes, you still see these beautiful glimpses of God's grace. Remember how we said when the serpent and Eve have their conversation, they don't use God's covenantal name, Yahweh Elohim. They just use God's generic name, Elohim. Well, after Adam and Eve bite the fruit and the story moves on and God is looking for them in the garden, you know what the name used for God there is? The Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. And that's the name used until the end of the passage. Adam and Eve have just committed an act that has sent all of creation spiraling toward death and destruction. They're now running from God, and yet God still wants to be close. He said, I'm still Yahweh Elohim. Adam and Eve have changed, but God has not changed. And you know what the first words out of God's mouth are? Not, what have you done? Not, why did you disobey me? The first words out of his mouth are, where are you? Where are you? Is it because God doesn't know where they are? Of course he knows where they are. He's God. When God says, where are you? It's a glimpse of his heart. The heart of a God who pursues us. Every other religion is the story of humanity chasing God, humanity looking for God. Only Christianity is a story that from the very beginning is a story of God looking for humanity. Where are you? 
and he's not looking for them so he can punish them. After he tells them what the consequences of their actions are, you know what the first thing he does is? We read he clothes them with garments of skin. He covers their shame in an act of love. Now, I remember growing up, getting in trouble by my mom. She would yell at me. She would also do some other things to me, which I won't say. Um, I'd be crying. And then afterwards, she would say, go wash up and come downstairs and eat. And I would come downstairs, and there would be this beautiful spread of food, and I would be very confused, okay? Very confusing. It's like, what are you doing here? What's your game? And now that I'm a parent, I understand that this is a mother's love. To feed the one who has just failed miserably. I imagine it broke the heart of God to see his children standing there sheepishly behind these fig leaves. Right? And I, you know, I write random things in my Bible notes. And I wrote, like, there were not even sewing machines back then. So you know, like, those fig leaves were coming apart at the seams. Okay? God, and I imagine God was like, what are you doing? Why are you living like this? Come here and let me cover you. And at the moment of humanity's rebellion, God is already thinking about his plan of reconciliation. In verse 15, we get the first mention of the gospel. Scholars call this the proto-evangelion. When God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Meaning through the seed of the very woman you deceived is going to come a man who will crush your head. And in the process, you will wound him. But in the end, you will be destroyed. And I love this so much because it's God saying, I'm not just going to rescue humanity. I'm going to use humanity to bring forth a Savior who will make everything right once again. After all that has happened, God still wants to partner with us. In Genesis, you have Adam in a garden standing in front of a tree with a choice. And Adam says, not your will but my will be done. In the Gospels, you have Jesus also in a garden, also standing in front of a tree with a choice. But unlike Adam, Jesus, the greater Adam, says, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what he does? He climbs up on that tree, the cross. And he bears the full weight of humanity's failure on his own shoulders. And in doing so, opens the door for you and I to be restored back to our creator so that we might experience the shalom of Genesis 1 again. Friends, I believe Jesus is calling out to you today. Where are you? Stop hiding. Stop running. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Come back to the giver of life. Let's pray. As our worship team comes back up, I want to give us a moment to respond to this word. And I want you to ask yourself, in what areas of your life are you not trusting God? In what areas of your life are you doubting God's goodness? 
This is not a time to think about, you know, every little mistake that you've done. Usually behind the things that we do is a distrust in God. Would you take a moment to reflect on that? And as that comes to mind, would you take a moment to pray, God, teach me how to trust you. Help me to see that you're for me and that you're for my good. Let's pray that prayer. God, we acknowledge this morning that we live in a world full of brokenness and even as we look inward, we realize that we're so broken as well, that we're clearly not well and we're living in the aftermath of Genesis 3. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ, this does not have to be the story that defines us. That in your life, your death, and your resurrection, new life is possible. God, we live in a city where it is so easy to hide. To hide behind our, our following, to hide behind our wealth and our popularity and our net worth and our degrees. And when we really get to the bottom of it, we realize that so many of us are afraid to look at who we are underneath all of those things. But we pray this morning we would come back to the giver of life, the one who pursues us, the one who is chasing us at this very moment, calling out, where are you? God, would you cover us this morning with your love and your grace and your mercy that we would know that we don't need to run anymore. We don't need to hide anymore. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're able, I'm going to invite us to stand. Let's respond to this word, the hope that we have in the gospel with, with these two songs of praise. Let's worship together.